Monday, January 15th, 2018. I first off, can I just say I I am having the most frustrating time right now preparing for this podcast. So many things have happened where I've had to do so much research and write down so many quotes and I'm going to be posting a bunch of articles with this episode, guys. So bear with me. I am Coming to you live from my luxurious studio apartment in an undisclosed location in South Los Angeles, California. Not bragging, but here I am on a Monday night lounging in my bed. So a lot of things have happened since uh, yesterday in the news. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about and we're going to go there. Okay. Um, But in this episode, I kind of wanted to, there's like two subjects I wanted to touch on. Um, The first one, well, I wanted to talk about um, the problematic nature of some of the movies that were celebrated at the Golden Globes last week. I know what you're thinking. This is the most privileged bullshit subject that anybody could be speaking of right now. Well, you know what? Maybe it is. But I have a problem. I have a problem with one of the films that people are celebrating right now. And you know what? I mean, I'm not going to say it's not a bad movie. It's not bad. But is it great? I don't think so. Um, And that movie I'm talking about is uh, Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri. And this film won uh, Best Film at the Golden Globes last week. (sighs) And I have problems with it. Here's... Let's just get right into it. So let me just let you know. I I see movies all the time. I go to the movies at least once a week. I equate going to the movies with a good therapy session. Oh, by the way, I should tell you that I'm getting over a cold. So if I start coughing, it um it it will be unpleasant for you mostly. But I'm just trying not to uh, choke to death in my luxurious studio apartment. And then you know my body won't have to be removed by god knows who um after i've choked to death in said luxurious studio apartment i have the tv on right now and in the background i have um well i have nbc on and earlier they had that uh that game show (laughs) i don't know what (laughs) this game show is so weird i mean it's it's i guess it's um you know, you're trying to win as much money as possible and they're and but they trick you into tearing up an envelope that has like a different amount of money in it and then you have a partner who's backstage and blah 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 blah. Chris Hardwick hosts it. I the name of it is escaping me, but it it is a propaganda fluff piece game show. Okay. They they haven't tricked me. They haven't gotten me on that. Anywho. 
now there's a program with um, George Foreman and William Shatner and Henry Winkler and one other old guy. And, oh, Terry Bradshaw. And they're, like, all on a trip to Europe. And, like, this is supposed to be, this is entertainment. I don't I don't know what's happening. I have no representation in the entertainment industry. I, I just want to say that. Me and Louis C.K. still have the same amount of representation in the entertainment industry, which is zero. Zero representation. And I have plenty of ideas, guys. I'm going to be repped one day. You know, who's who's going to discover this genius first? We'll see. Anyway, Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri. So this is a movie uh, written and directed by Martin McDonough, who is a... Um, Irish filmmaker. Okay. And uh, <sighs> this movie, I, I, when I saw it in the theater, I did enjoy it. I thought it was a nice movie. But after thinking about some of the, uh, the plot devices used in the film and then also some of the story arc used in the film, I have decided that this movie is problematic and is not the type of movie that should be winning Best Picture in the year 2017. 2018, sorry. 2018. And the reason why... <laughs> okay. So this movie... Just to give you a summary if you haven't seen it. It's about uh, a woman, a mother, of uh, a teenage girl who was um, raped and murdered and then, you know, burned alive. And left for dead, right? So she uh, rents out these thrill, uh, these three uh, abandoned billboards leading up to her home. And then on the first billboard, she has uh, raped while dying, it says. The second says, um, still no arrests, question mark. And then the last one says something, I think it says, uh, why Chief Willoughby, question mark. And Chief Willoughby is played by Woody Harrelson, okay? And the lead character is uh, Frances McDormand is playing her. And, um, her name's Mildred. Okay. So Mildred's goal is to, you know, get some sort of justice for her daughter, Angela, right? Who was brutally murdered. Okay. Simple enough. You know, uh, part of the problem that we're getting into in this film though. So they portrayed Mildred in this sort of like Rosie, the riveter type styling. Like she's always wearing like a mechanics jumpsuit. She apparently works at some sort of like souvenir gift shop in Missouri, which I mean, like they possibly cannot be making that much money. They do allude to the fact that, you know, she seems to be kind of broke. And at one point she, um, she has to sell uh, a trailer or something to pay for the billboards because the billboards are like outrageously expensive. They're like $5,000 a month. Um, so part of the conflict here in the film is that, you know, she's upset with the sheriff's department. Uh, Chief Willoughby, who's played by Woody Harrelson, he is uh, dying of cancer. This is not a spoiler alert, okay? You're going to know this within the first few minutes. And then there's another uh, officer in the sheriff's department. He is played by Sam Rockwell. And Sam Rockwell, lovely human, big fan, love his work, okay? Uh, so he plays Officer Dixon, right? So this film, the way it unfolds, there's there's a lot of interesting things that take place where I feel like by the end of the film, 
the the women and especially Mildred like there there is no redemption for her character and she's basically sort of like held in this limbo of where everybody thinks she's like crazy and a bitch and just like um you know unnecessarily forceful whereas the male characters in this film um have really lovely redemption arcs and especially officer dixon okay uh, because Officer Dixon is uh, a racist. They portray him as, um, you know, just being like horribly racist towards uh, black people in the town of Ebbing. Um, I mean, they allude to the fact that he just like beats the crap out of black people. And then that's like basically what he does for funsies. So this is this is like a bad guy. OK, he's a bad guy. And part of the issue with this film I, I mean, when you're watching it, it sort of feels more like it would be better as a stage play. Um, so it's written in a way where just like the problems of the story are resolved way too quickly. And within it's just way too short of a time frame. Like there's one part where, you know, Dixon has been beaten up. This is a spoiler alert. OK, so if you haven't seen this movie, fuck you. It's been out for over a month now. Like I think it's been out for two months I saw it like over a month and a half ago. Anyway, so there's a part where Dixon, you know, he gets the shit beaten out of him and he's in the, he's in the hospital. And then all of a sudden, like within a couple of days of getting out of the hospital, it's, it's like, he's like no longer racist. It's like so bizarre. It, it literally doesn't make any sense. Like the the turnaround on this character and his redemption is unbelievably short-sighted and unre- unrealistic. Another character who I had a real big problem was um uh okay, Charlie, which is Mildred's ex-husband, and he's played by John Hawks, who I believe was in The Perfect Storm years and years ago, uh kind of a famous character actor. But um the problem I have with Charlie and he's portrayed as, you know, an asshole, but he's like kind of like a charming asshole or whatever. And apparently he used to beat the shit out of Mildred when they were married. Okay. And now he's dating a 19 year old girl and everybody's just like fine with it. They're like, Oh, okay. You know, this isn't weird at all. And then there's one part where, you know, Charlie like has Mildred up against a wall and he looks like he's about to punch her. And I just feel like the reactions that people have to it, are just like way too passive. I don't know. I didn't like it. And then I have I read an article that said that Martin McDonough wrote this script for this film um, almost 10 years ago. Okay. So there's a problem right there. So this is this old script that was written at a time where things um, were a little less progressive. I don't know. I mean, uh, definitely before Black Lives Matter, um, definitely before the conversations we're having in terms of Me Too and intersexual intersectionality. Um, so this film is a little problematic and I, I don't think it should be best picture. So let me read you. Uh, there's this is our first article. <laughs> there's so many articles. I, I You're going to hate this. Like this is basically a homework assignment. Well, I'm doing the homework, okay? You guys can read along if you want to. So, this article uh, appears on Slate. I have to... I have to reload it. I'm sorry. Okay, so this is an article on Slate. um, 
and it's titled The Weinstein Moment Needs a Better Female Vengeance Story Than Three Billboards. Poor Mildred. Okay, things are not going well for me. I have to I have to refresh. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Here here's the problem about and Mildred is portrayed as, you know, she's a firecracker. She's very um outspoken. She's basically alienated for most of the people in Ebbing. And she has a reputation for like just like seeming crazy, which is frustrating because she's obviously a victim of domestic abuse. And maybe her behavior is a reflection of that. Maybe she treats people like shit because she's been treated like shit, you know? Cycle of violence, cycle of abuse. Okay. McDonough seems to have no idea how awful and cartoonish Mildred becomes and is supported by the filmmaker's conviction that Jason deserves a substantial redemption arc. So we're talking about Jason now. Jason Dixon, played by Rockwell. Known around town as a torturer of black citizens, Jason makes for the film's most artificial and tone-deaf component. The ne'er-do-well officer initially blames the billboards for Willoughby. Um, We'll say he... uh, has a problem that's a spoiler alert <laughs> and uh in the most vile scene in the film a drunk jason pistol whips the sign's owner played by caleb landry jones throws him out of a second story window punches his secretary who is a woman by the way and that that is a brutal scene walks downstairs and then kicks the bleeding uh man once again in the middle of the street later he returns to the station in the middle of the night to retrieve a post-mortem letter from Willoughby encouraging the officer to embrace goodness, which happens to be right when Mildred decides to burn down the police station, of course, right? The station goes up in flames, but Jason escapes with Angela's case file and sets out to crack the case, badge or no badge. Wow. The fire begs yet another question about Mildred's credibility as a feminist icon. Does she care that her act of violence will deny justice to every other victim of a crime in Ebbings, including possibly other victims of sexual assault? That's a real good point. She burns down an entire police station. Sounds bad. Sounds bad. So she is destroying case files of other cases. Ugh, God, this should have been a play. This should not be a film. And the fact that it's winning all these awards and praise, it's beyond me. It is not the best film of the year. It's fine. It can be fine, but is it great? No, it's not. I mean, it's not the best film of the year. Okay. What else here? Um... Oh, the sting from the diminishment of the issue of gendered violence assaulted by the objectifying or mean-spirited treatment that nearly every other significant female character receives from McDonough. McDormand appears without makeup, her male co-stars are similarly de-glammed, and Ebbings is portrayed as the town equivalent of a hole in the wall, but every woman under 40 seems to have been transported from a casting call in Century City. That's a good point. 
the age and attractiveness difference between 56-year-old Harrelson and 36-year-old Abby Cornish, who is costumed like a J. Crew model, is substantial and distracting. That was one of the weirdest parts of the movie, okay? Abby Cornish plays Woody Harrelson's wife, and she has her normal, like, Australian accent, and it makes literally no sense. And if you're in Missouri, like... People there, like, I no no shade if I have viewers in Missouri, but I mean, listeners, viewers, oh my god, if you guys were watching this, you would just see me like sprawled out like a like a beached seal on my on my Ikea bed. Yeah, not bragging that I have a bed from Ikea, guys, deal with it. I am a minor celebrity. So anyway, you know, she's like dressed all glamorously. <laughs> You know, and speaking in her Australian accent, but they're in the middle of Missouri. Like, none of this makes sense. Okay. Um, here we go. At least Cornish isn't asked to be both eye candy and a punching bag. Such is the fate of Samara Weaving's 19-year-old Penelope, whose reaction to watching her older boyfriend choke his ex-wife while his son holds a knife to his dad's neck is an empty-headed smile and a matter-of-fact request to use the bathroom. Man, this got a big laugh in the theater. Everybody was like, tee hee hee, hee hee hee. In, in a film where this was actually a scary moment where somebody could could have ended up dead, you know, she comes in and, and she's like, can I pee? Um, Very weird moment. Okay. Later, in a scene where Mildred finally gives her blessing to the May-December couple of Charlie and Penelope, uh, Penelope asks whether the sport with the horses about what she's currently reading a book is called Polo or Polio. I'd call the character sitcomish, but that's insulting towards sitcoms. Wow. Really bad. Um, what else? Hmm. Well, that's that's the only thing I want to read about that. But I mean, there, there it's it's just like not. It's like basically masquerading as like a fake feminist film, and I don't think that the portrayal of Mildred is empowering or anything really. I mean, it's just whatever. And I love Frances McDormand. Um, she did step on my foot once when I was working at American Eagle Outfitters in New York, and she did apologize, and she was very nice. So she's a nice lady. She's a great actress and I respect her very much. But do I think this film is the best film of the year? No, I don't. Sorry. So I, I didn't like that at one best picture. It kind of feels like when Crash won best picture, um, whatever year that was, like 04, 05. Not a good film. So real quickly, I just want to go over what I do think are the best films of 2017. And I do have some predictions for the Oscars. I do predict the Oscars every year, you know. But awards, I mean, do they matter in a time like this? Do they no, probably not. Okay. So I, I made a top 10 list. Um, okay. So <laughs> here, here's my top 10. And some of them maybe, you know, honestly, they should be in a different order. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I'm okay with the order right now. Um, okay. So three billboards didn't make my top 10. I gave it an honorable mention. Okay, so we'll get to that later. So number 10, I have Personal Shopper, which was a an interesting foreign film um, with Kirsten Stewart, 
um, where she plays a personal shopper working for a celebrity in Europe. Uh, look it up. I don't need to get into it. Uh, number nine, Marjorie Prime, based on a play. Uh, number eight, The Square, which won the Palme d'Or uh, this year at Cannes. Uh, number seven, uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which was the new uh, Yorgos Lothimos film uh, starring Colin Farrell. Look it up. Uh, number six, Get Out. Uh, number five, Lady Bird by Greta Gerwig. She did a really good job. I'm sorry. That was a good movie. Um, number four, A Ghost Story. Yeah, I know Casey Affleck was in it. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm a problematic fucking person. Ugh, kill me. Okay, uh, number three, Phantom Thread, uh, the new PTA film. This film was kind of hard to watch for me. It was a little bit triggering um, because of the depiction of some of the uh, psychological tensions between the main characters. Uh, this is allegedly Daniel Day-Lewis's last film. Uh, and he plays a uh, dress designer, like a basically like a, a haute couture designer in England named uh, Reynolds Woodcock. And he meets a young lady working as a waitress in a restaurant and they begin a relationship and she moves in with him. And there's a lot of elements of, um, uh, well, I don't know. I don't want spoiler alert. Uh, manipulation, narcissism, like all these power dynamics at play. And it, it's it's really interesting. Um, I don't think that I'm okay with it being Daniel Day-Lewis's last film. I really want him to come back, but we'll see what happens. Uh, number two, I have I, Tanya. Um, Really well done biopic. Is that how you say it? Biopic? That's how I'm saying it. Uh, and then number one... Wow, this is going to be controversial, folks. Look, I sometimes I am a contrarian. You know, sometimes I say things to rile people up because it because it uh, makes me happy to see people upset. Sometimes, <laughs> what does that mean that I'm a I'm a sadist? Okay, uh, number one film of the year, Mother. Okay, by Darren Aronofsky. I you know this movie. I, and and here's the thing about movies. They don't always have to make you feel great, okay? They they should make you think. That's what art should be doing. Art should be making you think. And that movie made me think. And I felt that that film, it was about something very, very significant to me last year. The movie was about betrayal. And it was about um, using using something innocent to one's advantage. You know, it was about, it was about loving someone and then having it, um, basically turned around on you. And, um, well, you'll see, I don't, (laughs) if, if you see mother, listen, if you've gone through a breakup recently, you should watch mother. You will feel, uh, justified in your feelings and you'll you'll just get it. And not to mention, it definitely seems to be one of the most personal films that Darren Aronofsky has ever made. And I think it definitely was um, a little bit autobiographical. And it's kind of interesting coming from a filmmaker like him, especially uh, because it was starring, you know, his own girlfriend, Jennifer Lawrence. They allegedly broke up, but I don't know. Who knows what's going on with that? Okay, so I have honorable mentions. Three billboards whatever uh <laughs> the next is uh blade runner 2049 pretty good uh patty cakes patty cakes was pretty well done that that was about uh, like a young girl 
are they in New Jersey? I don't know. So she wants to be a rapper. And, you know, she's in poverty. Her life sucks. Everything fucking sucks. Her mom is played by Bridget Everett, who does a good job. And she uh, decides to make a mixtape. And, you know, she wants to get out there. She wants to get out of her her life, you know, where she has no opportunities. And it's really empowering. I thought it was really good. And then the last one is Lady Macbeth, which was a very interesting uh, film. Um, it, oh man, there's so many factors of just like, um, isolation, uh, pain, desire, uh, power. Um, oh God, I, this movie was unbelievable. I mean, it'll, it'll literally leave you speechless. Um, the actress in this film, let me look her up. Um, so this movie, it was directed by... Okay, directed by William Oldroyd, and um, it was written by a woman named Alice Birch. Okay, and it's starring, I think she's kind of a new actress, and her name is Florence Pugh. Let's see. Okay, and so this, um, oh, it's based on a short story. Based on the short story, Lady Macbeth of the Matense District, District by Nikola Leskov. Okay, so this is, uh, you know, a young woman who's been married away to uh, an older man. You know, she's in a loveless marriage. You know, her life is really, you know, really in the suckage. Uh, real bad. <laughs> and guess what? She's horny, you know. Uh, and there's a, uh, there's a young man, you know, working in the, uh, in the household. <laughs> Things happen after that. And the guy who plays uh, the young man who she has the affair with his, her, his name and this guy is so good looking like honestly like google him now you will not regret it his first name is cosmo his last name is jarvis that is his real name cosmo jarvis apparently he is a uh singer songwriter also so he you can see that on his wikipedia i have not listened to his music it does say here on wikipedia that he is currently unsigned so um, maybe it's not great and, you know, that's fine. Or maybe he's just, you know, he wants to do it on his own, like a real artist, which is great. You know, doing it alone, just, just like me, I'm alone. Okay. And then finally, just to touch on, uh, my Oscar predictions and the Oscar nominations aren't even out yet, folks. Okay. So these are my Oscar predictions. Um, I think they're pretty, I think they're going to be pretty accurate. Um, I think, I think three billboards will win best picture. Unfortunately, I think it will, uh, best director, I think will be Guillermo del Toro for the shape of water. Wow. Talk about a film that takes horniness to an entirely new level guys. I mean, were you horny watching this movie? I wasn't, (laughs) I was actually kind of weirded out. There were so many, um, there's, this isn't a spoiler, but, um, what's his face Michael Shannon he's the bad guy and there were so many just like images of like his character like had two of his fingers bitten off and then reattached and his fingers are just like rotting on his hand the entire time oh my god I was just thinking about that the whole time I was like ugh, like imagine um those rotten fingers like going near your pussy anyway um I'm disgusting so (laughs) But yeah, I I have thought about Michael Shannon sexually. 
in the past. So, sorry. Um, and, you know, at the Oscars, they never... I've never seen them give Best Director and Best Picture to the same film. That's almost unheard of. They usually give Best Director a sort of a consolation prize. Um, Best Actor, I really think, will be Gary Oldman in The Darkest Hour. I did see that the other day. He is amazing. I honestly didn't know he could act like that. Unbelievable. He's a chameleon. Unbelievable. Best actress, I, I'm I'm assuming Frances McDormand in Three Billboards. I think um, Saoirse Ronan will be nominated for Lady Bird, but I think because of her age... Well, I don't know. Gosh, I, they've been giving Best Actress to a lot younger women lately, but... I do think that Frances is overdue. Um, she did win for Fargo, obviously. Um, but I think she's overdue, especially with her body of work. So I think they'll give it to her for three billboards, which fine. I'm fine with it. Best supporting actor, Sam Rockwell, three billboards. Yeah, he'll win. Um, traditionally and historically, I've seen best supporting actor go to, you know, older guys who have had long, substantial careers. I mean, he's had a very long, substantial career, and I guess he is a little bit older. I think he's almost 50. Um, and wow, he looks good. Um, God, do I sound horny? Um, anyway, <laughs> that, that, that's what I should have called this podcast. Do I seem horny? Um, okay. Best supporting actress, Allison Janney for I, Tanya. Wow. I mean, talk about just a national treasure and somebody I would like to have brunch with. She was so good in that movie. I mean, unbelievable. Uh, best screenplay, unfortunately, will go to Martin McDonough for Three Billboards because um, it is a uh, original screenplay. So you know what? Uh, Three Billboards is going to uh, sweep it mostly. We'll see. Should I go to Vegas and bet on the Oscars? Um, send an email to unrulypodcast.gmail.com. That is the official email address for the podcast. So the the thing I wanted to um, end on today and talk about it. So um, yesterday or the night before or Saturday night, Saturday night, um, a piece came out on a website, which I've literally never heard of, um, called babe.net. And it is titled, I, what does it say? I went on a date with Aziz Ansari it turned into the worst night of my life. Okay. So by now you've read this. I mean, I'm sure you have. I will post the link uh, on the podcast description along with the other articles that I've been talking about. Um, so this is um, a recounting by a young woman who uh, went on a date with Aziz Ansari, who is a obviously very famous comedian. Okay. And I, I'm a comedian. I, I, I know some things. <laughs> so anyway, Aziz Ansari, and this is important to remember, like he, he's always portrayed himself as this kind of like woke comic. I mean, a lot of his material and his last special, well, he has like this huge chunk about how guys are like creepers when they hit on women and, how catcalling is gross and blah, 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 blah. And now that I'm thinking about it, like maybe that's like a mask for something. 
just in the same way that like I feel like Louis was kind of doing some masking of things in his own material. But anyway, um, if, if you haven't read this, I'll just briefly let you know. So she went out on a date with um, Aziz Ansari. I guess she was uh, 22, this girl. They met in L.A. at the uh, Emmy Awards at an after party. Uh, they were both taking pictures with the same vintage camera. Okay. Very romantic. Uh, they exchanged numbers. They both live in New York. So they went back to New York and then he, um, you know, asked her out on a date. They went out to dinner, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So here's where things start to get, uh, murky and controversial and where people are getting really angry. Okay. So they go to, uh, a restaurant here. Okay. Or what is it called? Oh, I've never been here. Grand Banks, an oyster bar on board a historic wooden schooner. Schooner? 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 Look, I'm not a boat person, okay? I did not grow up rich, and I'm sorry. Uh, So you're just going to have to bear with me. So it's on the Hudson River. Okay. She said it was a beautiful, warm September night. They discussed NYU... I'm an alumni as well. Uh, comedy, a new secret project he was working on, but she says that she did most of the talking. Uh, let's see. Gra- Grace, they call her Grace in the article. Grace says she sensed Ansari was eager for them to leave. When the waiter came over, he quickly asked for the check and said, let's get off this boat. Wow. She recalls there was still wine in her glass and more left in the bottle he ordered. The abruptness surprised her. Like, he got the check, and then it was bada-boom, bada-bing, we're out of there. They walked the two blocks back to his apartment building, an exclusive address on Tribeca's Franklin Street, where Taylor Swift has a place, too. Wow, fucking fancy. Uh, When they walked back in, she complimented his marble countertops. Do you think they're imported from Italy? Probably. Uh, According to Grace, Ansari turned the compliment into an invitation. He said something along the lines of, how about you hop up and take a seat? Within moments, he was kissing her. In a second, his hand was on my breast. Man, I read things in a very erotic manner, and I apologize for that. (laughs) Then he was undressing her. Then he undressed himself. She remembers feeling uncomfortable at how quickly things escalated. Okay, here we go. Let's pause right here. She remembers feeling uncomfortable at how quickly things escalated. So... She's already uncomfortable. So people are, there's been a backlash to this piece already. And we're about to get into that. Uh, because, I mean, the pieces that have been published in response to this are unfucking believable You won't even believe your ears. Your ears, your eyes. Anyway. Uh, when Ansari told her he was going to grab a condom within minutes of their first kiss, Grace voiced her hesitation explicitly. I said something like, whoa, let's, rela- let's relax for a sec. Let's chill. She says he then resumed kissing her, briefly performed oral sex on her, and asked her to do the same thing to him. She did, but not for long. It was really quick. Everything was pretty much touched and done within 10 minutes of hooking up, except for actual sex. I mean, that's, I mean, first off, let's just talk about the over-eagerness of this guy. I mean, I think it's really presumptuous for somebody to, you know, take you out on a dinner date and then immediately expect you to, like, do all these things. I can already, I listen, 
And and I, I'm not really, I'm trying to be a neutral party to this, but as a woman who has been in, you know, dating situations, I mean, I could say I would definitely feel uncomfortable, especially within a few minutes of like, really like meeting or knowing this person. And another thing at play here is obviously that he is a celebrity and is, you know, rich and successful. So like there's this element of power that's kind of unspoken here. So she could already just feel, you know, pressured and confused, you know. I mean, I've never hooked up with a celebrity. I would like to. Uh please hit me up at unrulypodcast at gmail dot com if you are a celebrity who would like to hook up with me. I'm sure you are out there. I'm pretty sure that John Mayer and I have a good chance of getting together in this lifetime um, as our lives inch slowly toward one another in shared social circles. I'm pretty sure that we will meet and that one day we will touch and that um, fireworks will rain above the sky and the earth will finally uh, be at peace because two soulmates uh, just met each other. Uh, with hands and lips. So, <laughs> God, I, I'm insane. Anyway, so, <laughs> John, call me. Why haven't you called me? Why haven't you responded to any of my Instagram DMs? I'm so sick. It's it's the cold medicine that I haven't taken. I'm It's affecting me. Oh, anyway. Okay, so this girl, she's uncomfortable. She's already uncomfortable. Here we go. This is this is the part that, oh God, this is so gross. She says Ansari began making a move on her that he repeated during the encounter. The move he kept doing was taking his two fingers in a V shape and putting them in my mouth, in my throat to wet his fingers. Because the moment he'd stick his fingers in my throat, he'd go straight for my vagina and try to finger me. Grace called the move the claw. Oh my God. That is so gross. Like, I don't think I've ever had a guy like stick his fingers in my mouth like that. Unless like, first off, like, who are you? Like, do I, do I, do I know you? Do I know you? Like, where have your hands been? I mean, they were just at like a nasty ass seafood restaurant. I'm sorry. I'm sure it's not a nasty restaurant. I, but like, you know, you just ate, like, did you wash your hands? Like, who are you? Oh my god. It, it and it's just so presumptuous. It's so presumptuous and gross. It's presumptuous and gross and it sounds like he watches too much porn. Okay. Ansari also physically pulled her hand towards his penis multiple times throughout the night from the to- the time he first kissed her on the countertop onward. He probably moved my hand to his dick five to seven times, she said. He really kept doing it after I moved it away. And I do want to let you know I have talked about this on the episode that's coming out next week. Me and Danielle Perez will be talking about this. But we did say on that episode, it's like, hello, if if a woman wants to touch your dick, she'll touch your dick. Okay? So calm down, guys. Calm down. Okay. But the main thing was that he wouldn't let her move away from him. She compared the path they cut across his apartment to a, to a football play. Quote, it was 30 minutes of me getting up and moving and him following and sticking his fingers down my throat again. It was really repetitive. It felt like a fucking game. End quote. Yeah, it's creepy. 
throughout the course of her short time in the apartment, she says she used verbal and nonverbal cues to indicate how uncomfortable and distressed she was. Quote, most of my discomfort was expressed in me pulling away and mumbling. I know that my hand stopped moving at some point, she said. I stopped moving my lips and turned cold, end quote. Okay, here's a very key part, uh, verbal and nonverbal cues. Um, I'm, I'm repeatedly disgusted by people who think that, um, you know, when you're in an uncomfortable situation, especially an uncomfortable sexual situation, that it is, uh, completely, you know, sensical and everything like for somebody to be able to say no verbally. Um, I think that it's important to remember that people can often freeze, in situations, um, this is something that is discussed at length in, in the DSM, um, freeze response. Um, so you can be in fear and just, you know, be sort of like paralyzed and not know what's going on and not really able to express yourself verbally in a moment of fear, right? So, I mean, it, and especially if she's like trying to get away from him, you know, to me, that's de- a definite nonverbal cue that she doesn't want to really go any further okay let's see um the article continues whether Ansari didn't notice grace's reticence or knowingly ignored it it is impossible for her to say i know i was physically giving off cues that i wasn't interested i don't think that was noticed at all or if it was it was ignored Ansari wanted to have sex she remembers him asking again and again where do you want me to fuck you? While she was still seated on the countertop. She says she found the question tough to answer because she didn't want to fuck him at all. Quote, I wasn't even thinking of that. I didn't want to be engaged in that with him. But he kept asking. So I said, next time. And he goes, oh, you mean second date? And I go, oh yeah, sure. And he goes, well, if I poured you another glass of wine now, would it count as our second date? He then poured her a glass and handed it to her. She excused herself to go to the bathroom soon after. Grace says she spent around five minutes in the bathroom, collecting herself in the mirror and splashing herself with water. Then she came, then she went back to Ansari. He asked her if she was okay. Quote, I said, I don't want to be, feel forced because then I'll hate you and I'd rather not hate you, she said. She told Babe at first that she was happy with how he reacted. He said, oh, of course, it's only fun if we're both having fun. The response was technically very sweet, and he and acknowledging the fact that I was very uncomfortable. Verbally, in that moment, he acknowledged that I needed to take it slow. Then he said, quote, let's just chill over here on the couch. Oof. Okay, let's see. Uh, this moment is particularly significant for Grace because she thought that she would, it would be the end of the sexual encounter. Her remark about not wanting to feel forced had added a verbal component to the cues she was trying to give him about her discomfort. When she sat down on the floor next to Ansari, who sat on the couch, she thought he might rub her back or play with her hair, something to calm her down. Ansari instructed her to turn around. He sat back and pointed to his penis and motioned for me to go down on him. And I did. I think I just felt really pressured. It was literally the most unexpected thing I thought would happen at that moment because I told him I was uncomfortable. Soon, he pulled her back up on the couch. She would tell her friend via text later that that night, quote, he made out with me again and says, doesn't look like you hate me. <sighs> okay. 
presumption much blah 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 he like oh god he rammed his penis against her ass while he said it where do you want me to fuck you do you want me to fuck you right here Oof, boy persistent this guy's persistent blah 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 okay While the TV played in the background, he kissed her again, stuck her fingers down her throat again, and moved to undo her pants. She turned away. She remembers, quote, feeling in a different mindset at that point. I remember saying, quote, you guys are all the same. You guys are all the fucking same. Quote, Ansari asked her what she meant. When she turned to answer, she says he met her with gross, forceful kisses. Ugh. God, yeah, this guy sounds, ugh, he sounds like so many people. And you know what? When she said that, you guys are all the same, you guys are all the fucking same. I totally get that. Because, listen, I've had repeatedly guys who, (laughs) I've made it clear I'm not interested in them, just make repeated sexual advances towards me. And I'm particularly thinking of a guy who, um, I knew him from NYU and he um he was actually in a comedy troupe at NYU and he would try to like like say sexual things to me via messenger and ims even though like he had a girlfriend and it was just like creepy and weird and whatever um god i ugh ugh sounds familiar right i mean if you're a woman listening to this i i feel like we've all been like in in situations where you have felt like coerced into doing things you don't want to do so i definitely sympathize with her on this point um at no point does this article actually say like you know aziz ansari is a rapist or aziz ansari you know assaulted me or blah, blah blah okay and it also includes um a text screenshot um of a long text that she sent to Aziz so he texted her the next day and said hey it was fun meeting you last night I just dropped off my roll of film today fingers crossed for some solid shots and then you know she responds with a very long text saying that she felt uncomfortable and you know like oh last night would have been may have been fun for you but for me it was uncomfortable and so she you know she did um, she did, you know, express this, you know, via text, you know, in print. So that's good. So anyway, um, the, the reactions to this article, well, first off, Aziz Ansari has responded. Okay. Um, his, this is his statement, uh, in response to the issue and the woman did end up uh leaving and going home in a cab i guess and they didn't have sex you know because she was she didn't want to and that's fine um and she did so the last quote in the article from uh grace is she says quote i believe that i was taken advantage of by aziz i was not listened to and ignored it was by far the worst experience with a man i've ever had Okay, and it probably is. You know, I believe that, you know. Here we go. Aziz Ansari's full statement. Quote, in September of last year, I met a woman at a party. 
We exchanged numbers. We texted back and forth and eventually went on a date. We went out to dinner and afterwards we ended up engaging in in sexual activity, which by all indications was completely consensual. The next day, I got a text from her saying that although, quote, it may have seemed okay, upon further reflection, she felt uncomfortable. It was true that everything did seem okay to me. So when I heard that it was not the case for her, I was surprised and concerned. I took the words to heart and responded privately after taking the time to process what she had said. I continue support to support the movement that is happening in our culture. It is necessary and long overdue. Okay, Aziz. If you say so. Good God. Okay, so then today, this brings us to today, where The Atlantic decides to run a piece by a writer by the name of Caitlin Flanagan. Okay, and this piece is highly problematic. I have seen uh, many people sharing this, um, mostly, um, well, some comics who I kind of know um, in my social circle, um you know, friends of friends. So this piece is called The Humiliation of Aziz Ansari. And uh, Caitlin Flanagan, so let's get some background on this woman. So Caitlin Flanagan, um, she is not our friend, okay? This woman, uh, she has explicitly said that she is an anti-feminist writer. Um, So here are some articles that I will link to in the... uh, the podcast description. So one piece you can look up, it's from Ms. Magazine. Um, it's written by Hillary Frey. Uh, let's see what date this is. This is from the winter 2004 issue of Ms. Magazine. Uh, the title is Back to the Kitchen circa 1950 with Caitlin Flanagan. Okay, so this article, um, it just gives you sort of a background on how Flanagan got started as a writer. Um, she was a stay-at-home mother, um, and then she met Benjamin Schwartz, who is an editor at The Atlantic, and they were in a, a writing group, I guess, essentially. And he asked her if he wanted to write some pieces for The Atlantic. And the big piece that basically sort of made her mark in The Atlantic, it's it's titled How Serfdom Saved the Women's Movement, Dispatches from the Nanny Wars. And this piece, my God, it is 12,000 words long. I'm not even exaggerating. I pulled it up uh, on the Atlantic Archive website. Um, it is from, let me tell you exactly what date. And I will also link this piece. (sighs) Oh my God. Everything is like so slow today. My internet is slow. Oh God. I should let you guys know. I, you know, it's, it's a little late right now, but I did, I went to Pilates this morning at eight and I'm like so proud of myself. So I went to Pilates at eight. I went to work. I went to the comedy store, potluck open mic. And uh, now I'm recording this podcast, you know, nice, good Monday of work. What did you guys do today on Monday? Email me unrulypodcast at gmail.com. Why am I still saying that? Like I get enough emails already, but I I just want, I want somebody to ask me a question. (laughs) That would be good. Okay. Oh, it's not, it's not loading. But anyway, just know that this is a 12,000 word piece 
basically decrying the lifestyle of women who have nannies, even though this woman, I mean, she's obviously privileged. Um, Okay, so this is from a March 2004 uh, Atlantic uh, issue. Okay. And there's no, there, you'll, if you see it, like, there's literally no, there's no citations, like, like, she's not citing anything. She's accusing rich women of, of taking advantage of nannies because they are feminist and want to go to work and instead of, you know, staying home as stay-at-home moms. And, and this is key because in the Ms. Magazine piece and then in another piece in The Observer, which I will also link. <laughs> this is getting so convoluted. But um, so Flanagan is basically saying in these articles that her mindset was kind of formed by the fact that her mother, um, she, I guess, went back to work when she was a when she was a kid and she resented that because she didn't get a lot of attention. So right here, there's a psychological explanation for why a woman like this would be anti-feminist and decrying things like the Me Too movement. Okay, she she has mother issues and she feels that she was abandoned. And personally, I'm not a psychologist, but I would recommend that she reads a book that my therapist has recommended to me. And I am currently reading and everyone should read too. It is a book titled Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. And this book will help that woman. But anyway, so Caitlin Flanagan, who is very reactionary. um, So in this Miss Magazine piece, she actually said that her pet peeves are anti-feminism. Oh, wait, no, not anti-feminism. Sorry. Her pet peeves are feminism and homophobia. Okay, how is that even possible? Like, like this, this person is insane. This is not somebody who thinks in a sensical manner, okay? But now this piece, the humiliation of Aziz Ansari is, is floating around and people are like, wow, what an amazing piece. But let me read you a quote from this damn thing because it, it, it's unbelievable. Oh my God. Is anything going to load on this computer ever again? That's the question. That's my question. <sighs> okay. Let's see. So the the byline of this article says, Allegations against the comedian are proof that women are angry, temporarily powerful, and very, very dangerous. Okay, Caitlin. Okay, girl. So she mentions Cat Person early on. Cat uh, Person, of course, the New Yorker story that went viral, um, you know, about a woman who was in a texting relationship with a guy that ended up kind of uncomfortable and weird. So here we go. Damn it. I'm sorry. I have, I have so many tabs open, guys. So she gets into her whole past, Caitlin does. So she talks about how, you know, she was a teenager in the in the 70s and, you know, things were different then. And, and you know, here, here's, here's a key thing that she goes into. Um, this is, she's talking about, like, what things were like when she was growing up and how things were as far as, you know, sexual assault or things like that. Um we're going to jump right in. Uh, 
Those magazines, I guess whatever magazine she used to read, didn't prepare teenage girls for sports or STEM or huge careers, the kind of world-conquering, taking-number strength that is the common language of the most middle-of-the-world cultural products aimed at today's girls were totally absent. But in one essential aspect, they reminded us that we were strong in a way that so many modern girls are weak. They told us over and over again that if a man tried to push you into anything you didn't want, even just a kiss, you told him flat out you weren't doing it. If he kept going, you got away from him. You were always to have, quote, mad money with you, cab fare in case he got fresh and then refused to drive you home. They told you to slap him if you had to. They told you to get out of the car and start start wailing if you had to. They told you to do whatever it took to stop him from using your body in any way you didn't want, and under no circumstances to go down without a fight. In so many ways, compared with today's young women, we were weak. We were being prepared for being wives and mothers, not occupants of the C-suite. But as far as getting away from a man who was trying to pressure us into sex we didn't want... We were strong. Well, yeah, well, good for you, Caitlin. Good for you. I mean, talk about the most one of the most problematic paragraphs I've seen in in my entire fucking life. Um, first off, what is she saying? She's saying like women in her time were taught to be strong. Does, so is she saying that nobody got raped back then? Like, what the fuck is she saying? That it's unbelievable unbelievable and she's acting as though women aren't you know told to say no guess what women are told to say no just because you say no doesn't mean that a man will stop okay i know i know that's hard to hear but just because you say no doesn't mean someone will stop just because you try to punch a guy you know who's trying to get on you doesn't mean he won't rape you my mother my own mother who i love very dearly we got into this discussion when i was home over christmas you know she said she said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, if a man, you know, tries anything like that on you, you know, you just you just slug him, you just slug him. And it's like, OK, yeah, you can do that. You can punch a guy, you know, but just because you're punching a guy doesn't mean it's going to stop him from raping you or stop him from attacking you. You know, just because you do one thing doesn't mean that the other thing isn't going to happen. I know this is blowing some people's minds right now, but just because you try to defend yourself doesn't mean it will be successful, okay? And that and that's the reality of what we're dealing with here. And men are men are stronger than women. They really are. I know people look at me and they think, "Wow, like what a um sexy and voluptuous woman. How did she ever get that way?" Well, guys, I'll tell you what. It it it's a lot of factors going into the way I look. I mean, first off, genetics. I've won the lottery jackpot. You know, I'm tall. I have great bone structure, a lovely olive skin tone that is ethnically ambiguous. But guess what? I am burdened. I am burdened. Even though I am near perfect physically, I have problems, okay? I am not as strong as a man. <laughs> oh, God, I'm trying to lighten it up right now because... <laughs> This is some heavy shit we're talking about. No, but like, honestly, truly, you know, men are just biologically stronger than women. I have no problem saying that because it's true. I I mean, I've been, um, I've unfortunately had a boyfriend who got physically abusive with me. And even though he was like physically, you know, a little shorter than me and smaller than me, he, I mean, he was definitely, 
way stronger than me and able to like, you know, push me around a little. And it was scary. I didn't like that, you know, and men just have more brute strength than women, especially when they get angry. You know, there's all sorts of factors of hormones going into play. Men and women have different components of hormones. I I know this is going to shock you, but they just do. And that's what makes the difference between men and women, you know, attacking each other so, so different here because a man can easily overpower women no matter what his size usually Oh, Caitlin. Okay, let's go back into Caitlin here. So Caitlin's talking about the babe article uh, and disease. Um, The last two paragraphs of this piece are where things really get frustrating. Okay, so she says, quote, 24 hours ago, this is the speed at which we are now operating. Aziz Ansari was a man whom many people admired and whose work, although very well paid, also performed a social good. Oh my god. (laughs) I'll keep going. Uh, He was the first exposure many young Americans had to a Muslim man who was aspirational, funny, immersed in the same culture that they are. Now he has been, in a professional sense, assassinated on the basis of one woman's anonymous account. Many of the college-educated white women who so vocally support this movement were entirely on her side. The feminist writer and speaker Jessica Valenti tweeted, quote, A lot of men will read that post about Aziz Ansari and see an everyday reasonable sexual interaction. But part of what women are saying right now is what that what the culture considers normal sexual encounters are not working for us and are some are oftentimes harmful. I thought it would take a little longer for the hit squad of privileged young white women. This is Caitlin speaking again to fire on to open fire on brown skinned men. I had assumed that on the basis of intersectionality and all that. Oh God, this woman. Sorry, I keep commenting before I'm totally ready. I had assumed that on the basis of intersectionality and all that, they'd stay laser-focused on college-educated white men for another few months. But we're at warp speed now, and the revolution, in many ways so good and so important, is starting to sweep up all sorts of people into its conflagration, the monstrous, the cruel, and the simply unlucky. Apparently there is a whole country full of young women who don't know how to call a cab and who have spent and who have spent a lot of time picking up pretty outfits for dates they hoped would be nights to remember. They're angry and temporarily powerful, and last night they destroyed a man who didn't deserve it. Wow. Talk about hyperbole to close out that piece. I mean, first off, nothing has been destroyed, really. I mean, this dude's career is still intact, you know. Uh, and, and, oh God, this woman is, I mean, she writes as though she was frozen in somebody's like suburban garage freezer, you know, like, you know, you're, you're making it in the suburbs when you have that extra freezer in the garage and you keep your, like your excess frozen meats in it. She like took a nap in the freezer for 60 fucking years and they thawed her out and her brain wasn't fully thawed when they got her out. And then she wrote this piece in the Atlantic. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. This is a dangerous piece. And of course the Atlantic is publishing it. 
Uh, because, I mean, first off, look at their demographics. And then second, they want clicks. So guess what? They're getting clicks. This is like the most popular thing on the internet right now. And then another problematic piece I saw, it's an op-ed appearing in the New York Times written by somebody uh, who I've literally never heard of, but I looked her up on Twitter. Um, her name is Bari Weiss. And the op-ed is titled, Aziz Ansari is Guilty of not being a mind reader. Oh God. I mean, it's unbelievable. It, it's This piece is also kind of very victim blamey. Um, and I look this woman up. She seems to be a young woman, uh, much younger than Caitlin Flanagan. No shade, Caitlin, but um, you are a lot older and maybe that's part of why your ideas are so um, backwards. Okay. So Bari Weiss in her op-ed, and this was literally published maybe three hours ago on the New York times. Um, so she says, she opens up with, I'm apparently the victim of sexual assault. And if you're a sexually active woman in the 21st century, chances are that you are too. This is what I learned from the quote expose of Aziz Ansari published this weekend by the feminist website Babe, arguably the worst thing that has happened to the Me Too movement since it began in October. It transforms what ought to be a movement for women's empowerment into an emblem for female helplessness. The headline primes the reader to gird for the very worst. I went on a date with Aziz Ansari. It turned to the worst night of my life. Like everyone else, I clicked going on we're going on the victim in this 3,000 word story is called grace not her real name and her saga with mr ansari began at the 2017 emmys after party blah blah, blah. we're recounting the piece we're recounting the piece uh let's see uh okay so we're getting into the text that Grace sent to Aziz. So we're getting, this is what uh, Miss Bari or Barry, I don't know how to say her name. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm not sorry. Okay. So um, last night might've been fun for you, but it wasn't for me. She responded. This is in the text. You ignored clear nonverbal cues. You kept going with advances. You had to have noticed I was uncomfortable. He replied with an apology. Read Grace's text message again, says Barry. Put in other words, quote, I am angry that you weren't able to read my mind. Well, guess what? That translation is incorrect. Okay. Um, Barry continues, it is worth carefully studying Grace's story. Encoded in it are new yet deeply retrograde ideas about what constitutes consent and what constitutes sexual violence. We were told by the reporter that Grace, quote, says she used verbal and nonverbal cues to indicate how uncomfortable and distressed she was. She adds that, quote, whether Ansari didn't notice Grace's reticence or knowingly ignored it is possible for her to say. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, Barry Weiss, this is, this is where you, this is where you have a problem. Uh, I'm a proud feminist, and this is what I thought while reading Grace's story. If you are hanging out naked with a man, it is safe to assume he's going to try to have sex with you. Okay, well, guess what? He did try to have sex with her. Th that's not the mystery here. What are you trying to say? And first off, I don't think they were like totally naked. I, ugh, God. If you read the babe piece again, I, there was no indication that she was naked or that he was naked. It seems like they were like, were, like 
clothed or partially clothed or and he was like you know pulling down his pants or uh, oh god she goes on in this op-ed and by the way what are the standards to have an op-ed in the new york times Uh, i i i literally cannot believe that they put this out tonight well i mean i can because they want clicks but it's terrible okay if the inability to choose a Pinot Noir over a Pinot Grigio offends you, you can leave right then and there. If you don't like the way your date hustles through paying the check, you can say, I've had a lovely evening and I'm going home now. If you go home with him and discover he's a terrible kisser, say, I'm out. If you start to hook up and don't like the way he smells or the way he talks or doesn't talk, end it. If he pressures you to do something that you don't want to do, Use a four-letter word, stand up on your two legs, and walk out his door. Aziz Ansari sounds like he was aggressive and selfish and obnoxious that night. Isn't it heartbreaking and depressing that men, especially the ones who present themselves publicly as feminists, so often act this way in private? Okay, here's one thing I agree with. Shouldn't we try to change our broken sexual culture? And is it it enraging that women are socialized to be docile and accommodating and to put men's desires before their own? Yes, yes, yes. But the solution to these problems does not begin with women torturing men for failing to understand their quote-unquote nonverbal cues. It is for women to be more verbal. It's to say, this is what turns me on. It's to say, I don't want to do that. And yes, it sometimes means saying piss off wow i'm I'm so glad life is so simple for you barry uh the single most distressing thing to me about grace's story is that the only person with any agency in this story seems to be aziz ansari grace is merely acted upon well guess what that is what you should be thinking but your conclusions on what grace should have or should not have done are very victim blamey and wrong because guess what? Nonverbal communication is just as important as verbal communication. And I can't get into all of that. I mean, I have taken Psychology 101. Uh, yes, at NYU. Not a brag, once again. But I do have uh, some psychological education. And I, I would encourage people to do some more research on the importance of nonverbal communication because when you think about it when you really think about it a ton of human communication is nonverbal okay body language is huge you know like you get you know when somebody's resisting you physically okay this isn't this isn't uh rocket science like people should get this unbelievable god uh I don't even want to finish the rest of this thing. Let's see. Blah, 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 blah. And I don't think, I think, okay, so Barry refers to what happened uh, between Aziz and this girl as assault. I don't think the Babe article used the word assault. Um, no, it didn't, actually. It, it never said assault. Um, so there, that's problematic. Um, so here's the conclusion of what Barry Weiss says. Uh, there is a useful term for what Grace experienced on her night with Mr. Ansari. It's called bad sex. It sucks. 
The feminist answer is to push for a culture in which boys and young men are taught that sex does not have to be pursued like they're in a porn film, and one in which girls and young women are empowered to be bolder, braver, and louder about what they want. The insidious attempt by some women to criminalize awkward, gross, and entitled sex takes women back to the days of smelling salts and fainting couches. That's somewhere I, for one, don't want to go. Well, <laughs> good for you, Barry. Um, you're wrong. And this was not just bad sex. I mean, it was just invasive and gross and obviously unwanted. Uh, and, and another problem I have. Look, look. So let's say this happened. Let's say it did happen. I'm sure it did happen because, you know, the texts are proof enough. I think one of the things people are struggling with is binary thinking. People just have this I, this sense of black and white thinking uh, where they think everything is good or everything is bad. And the reason why binary thinking is so problematic is because it prevents us from really you know, thinking about the implications of um, certain actions or certain messages that we're receiving into our mind, right? And it kind of makes us into, and I'm sorry to sound corny, it makes us kind of like into sheeple. Sorry, hold on. I have a scratch in my throat. I had a sip of orange juice. Are you jealous? Okay. So I did some research and I found a journal article, a peer-reviewed journal article about binary thinking. And this is going to be helpful for us because we're going to talk about polarization. And this article is called Transcending Polarization Beyond Binary Thinking. It's by Jack Denfield Wood and Gian Piero uh, Petri Glieri. Very Italian. Okay. So binary thinking is problematic because it kind of leaves us in this, in this realm where either everything is good or everything is bad. And so in the case of this Aziz Ansari thing, I feel like, um, it's one of the types of things. First off, I feel like all of these incidences of abuse and misconduct and assault that have emerged um, through the Me Too movement, they all need to be evaluated on a case by case basis. Okay, so nobody is calling Aziz Ansari a rapist. Okay, nobody is saying that he assaulted somebody. Okay, this woman had a very uncomfortable night where somebody was coming on to her in ways that she did not enjoy. And she felt as though she was being manipulated, essentially. So it's gross. And he and the whole thing about him, like, sticking his fingers in her mouth and, you know, wanting to have sex immediately. It, it's just, it's it's gross. And it makes these presumptions, you know. Like, he definitely assumed that, you know, she just, like, wanted to fuck him, and that's problematic enough in itself. So there's a whole um, bunch of issues up that play there. So let me read you a couple of um, passages from this article. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see. 
Okay, so this is about dualism and binary thinking. Uh, I'm just going to read a long passage and then we'll get out of here. And I will um, link to this article as well. Uh, Dualism represents an ancient pattern of perception and thought. Dictionaries of ancient symbols note that, quote, numerous phenomena support a dualistic view of the world, such as the opposites of creator and created light and shadow, end quote. We humans have apparently always possessed the tendency towards psychic dualism. We speak of the opposites of day and night, spirit and matter, good and evil, male and female, and so on. Even celestial objects, for example, the sun and moon or Mars and Venus, have long been portrayed as opposites. Whether the physical structure of the cosmos is fundamentally dualistic, or whether this apparent dualism is an artifact of the human psyche, is an open question. Looked at psychologically, however, these external objects may simply be the canvas on which the structure of the human psyche paints its own designs. Uh, The next section is titled, The Neural Underpinnings of Binary Thinking. Research on the neurology of human emotions has shed some light on the nature of this inherent dualistic psychological pattern. According to Ledoux, any stimulus entering our central nervous system is immediately relayed in two directions. One pathway makes the information available to the cerebral cortex, which mediates cognitive, logical processing, and precise recognition. A second pathway carries the information toward the amygdala, a tiny but crucial uh, crucial subcortical structure mediating an emotional reaction to the object under scrutiny. The cortex and the amygdala are activated about the same time. However, the amygdala decides whether we like the object or not and often initiates a behavioral response before the cortex has even managed to figure out what the object actually is. And long before we are allowed the luxury of a conscious thought or conscious feeling. In other words, our brain gives us an emotional label to each to each object as good or bad, even before we cognitively grasp what that object is. Visual information is first processed by the thalamus, which passes uh, which passes rough, almost archetypical archetypal sorry uh, information directly to the amygdala. This quick transmission allows the brain to start to respond to possible danger. The quick and dirty emotional assessments we are hardwired to make by genetic design might be binary and reductive but they also make the world predictable and allow for instantaneous life-saving action. Emotional responses are, for the most part, generated subconsciously, uh, unconsciously, concludes Ledoux. So evolution has selected and conserved the neural machinery that supports instinctive, quote, good or bad binary thinking, largely because of its survival value. While we possess all the potential for archaic emotional reactions, it is not always helpful to be possessed by them. Often, survival is not at stake, and an instantaneous reaction can get us into trouble. Okay, this is a key part here. It'll get us into trouble by thinking in this binary manner, okay? So let's go on. 
the human brain is equipped with features that permit an alternative to this archaic instinctual mode of functioning. Thanks to a specific two-way neural pathway, the cerebral cortex can dialogue with the amygdala and exchange information if the emotional reaction is not overwhelming. The cortex can then access the amygdala's nonverbal and non-cognitive data, and the amygdala, in turn, receiving further and finer information from the cortex, can modulate its activity accordingly. When the energy of our emotional reactions is not discharged through automatic behavior, it is available as fuel for further exploration and learning. In other words, when emotions do not jumpstart an instinctual chain of reactions by passing the cortex, they can, prov- they can provide the drive to focus our efforts toward an ever finer understanding and better adaptation to a fluid environment. When the brain reacts in a binary way, it leads to quick, irrational decisions and action. When a dialogue is engaged between the emotional and rational parts of the brain, the tension of the opposites stimulates a more sophisticated exploration of the environment and further subsequent individual individual development. Looked at in this way, Binary thinking is much more than a risk avoidance mechanism. It is the necessary springboard for progress and the development of individuals, groups, and ultimately the species. And the final section will read, uh, The Psychology of Binary Thinking. For the individual, at an intrapsychic level, the process of decision-making typically begins with a choice among alternatives, usually between two alternatives, Should I marry or not? Should I take a new job or stay with the old one? Should I shop today or not? Should I buy the white soap or the pink one? The choice is a binary one. This or that between two alternatives lying along a single dimension. And it quickly acquires an emotional tone when we begin struggling to decide which option is right and which is wrong. Which is better or which is worse. Which one is good and which one... I'm sure it says it's bad. And which one, have to scroll, is bad. Reducing complex phenomena or choices to a binary set of alternatives is part of human nature, a fundamental mechanism deeply engraved in our nervous tissue and passed on from generation to generation for our survival. But it can continue to exert an archaic hold on us beyond its usefulness if it prevents us from looking beyond the polarity of opposites. We can see this archaic mode of thinking especially clearly with topics that evoke a strong emotional reaction. We heard that Americans are good and our enemies are evil. We say that men are from Mars and women are from Venus, i.e. that they are opposites. We argue that girls have better language skills than boys or do not. Or that boys are better in math than girls, or are not. We fall into the habit of speaking in dualistic categories, in part for linguistic convenience, of course, although we say this sort of thing so often that we can come to believe that reality is defined by two mutually exclusive categories. This tendency to consider differences not simply as variations, but as opposites reveals how quickly our thinking can regress to the markedly archaic mode manifested so clearly in childhood development. Psychoanalyst Melanie Klein defined this form of psychic functioning, splitting the world into good or bad, friends or foes, like and do not like, as the paranoid position. 
For preverbal children still incapable of dealing with ambivalence and complexity, splitting internal and external objects into all good or all bad, and acting accordingly is an irrational yet helpful way of simplifying and managing reality, at least in childhood. Okay, this article goes on much longer, but I think this is really helpful because what it's sort of teaching us is just the dangers of binary thinking and how it prevents you from having basically a multifaceted um, experience and interpretation of the world. And I think this definitely applies to the way that people are treating me too. Um, Because I think people want, you know, they want people to either be all good or all bad. They don't want in between, you know, they have this idea that, um, you know, either you're evil or you're good or, you know, vice versa. And in the case of uh, Aziz, you know, you have something that's sort of like, you know, a gray area and it's about coercion. It's about, um, you know, the way that men pressure women into having sex with them before they're ready. You know, it's, and it's especially about, um, you know, young women feeling that they're in a situation where they have to please a man who they want to impress or, you know, you know, she was so excited to go on a date with him, you know, and it turned to this, you know, this nightmare. So there could have been a lot of cognitive dissonance going on within her at that moment, you know, I mean, you never know the way somebody's going to react when, when you treat somebody in this manner. And and the thing I don't like about it is it just seems very like, gross and and using and entitled and and I don't like that you know I'm not a fan of that sort of treatment I don't think people should be treated like that you know but you know we have to um we have to remember that you know in in this binary thinking that people are using I mean that's sort of the view that Caitlin Flanagan is using it's sort of like a reactionary binary thinking pattern where she's sort of like um saying that the reaction to this disease article is bad and you know women are basically you know they have so much power right now but what they're doing right now is bad and they're destroying his career and he doesn't deserve it and blah 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 okay so I'm going to post the links to all these articles. I want you to think more about binary thinking. I'm not trying to give you homework, but I'm thinking about it. I'm in bed right now thinking about binary thinking, you know, in my luxurious studio apartment. You know, I'm doing the Lord's work right now. Um, (sighs) I've been talking for an hour and a half and I feel like uh, we're going to end here. I I will say that, you know, I've heard things about Aziz and I don't think this is the last we're going to hear about it. So you've heard it here on the Unruly podcast. Um, something something else is going to happen. We'll see. But, you know, those are my thoughts for now. Think about what Caitlin Flanagan had to say. Do not take it seriously. I mean, this woman purposely uh, stirs the pot for the Atlantic and they love it. I mean... They they want to sell ads, and they're doing it. They're doing it. They're really making a killing today. <laughs> um. So what else do I have? What do I have coming up? I, do I have shows? Yeah, I have a show at the Hollywood Hotel on uh, January 20th. That is Saturday. It's called Mock the New Year. It's some sort of um, 
game uh game type show where I'm gonna be the female captain, I guess, and we're going to be doing stand up and uh doing some trivia stuff and it should be fun. So come after that, that'll be at the Hollywood Hotel. They they have great shows there all the time now. I don't know what's going on. It seems like comedy's picking up again. Uh, and uh, as always, I do host the Wednesday night, 10 p.m. open mic at Echoes on Pico called the WCW Open Mic. And you can find all the rest of my future dates. Oh, including a roast battle with John Michael Bond on January 23rd at the World Famous Comedy Store, 10.30 p.m. Uh, watch on Periscope live um follow me on twitter once again at fixed air heather and on instagram same handle and guys yeah email me Uh, i want to hear from you i want to hear your thoughts what do you think of all this what do you think of binary thinking do you think that way do you think everything's all good or all bad when it isn't when clearly things are way more complicated than that and you should really learn to indulge the way the human mind is able to think um, and just marvel at the abilities of the human mind to process all kinds of information because that's what we should be doing. Okay, it's late and I'm going to uh, relax now because I haven't relaxed all day. Okay, take care guys. Bye. Bye.